Well, if you did have a Bible, please keep it open at the passage that we read. And if you've been here for um, the last few weeks in the mornings, you'll know that Keith has been taking us through a series of four through Ephesians chapter five, or part of Ephesians chapter five about living the spirit-filled life. And tonight, just for a single sermon, we're going to look at this passage, which may be well known to some of you, maybe not to some others, but you might know it as the passage about the armor of God. And if you've read the book of Ephesians, you'll know that in the first three chapters, we're reminded about, if you're a Christian, what you used to be like. What a change that there has been in us and because of what the Lord Jesus has done. We're reminded that the Christian is different to how we used to be. We have to be different. And chapters four to six of this book stress to us that being different, we should live differently. It should be seen. We should walk in unity. We should walk in love. And we should be living all of this out, we're told, in the church, in the world out there, and in the home. And we were reminded that that's a difficult place sometimes, isn't it? Because that's where the real you and the real me is seen. But any of us who've been a Christian for any length of time will know that despite this change and despite these promises which we have and which we know to be true, the reality can be day to day that the Christian life is not always easy, is it? And so Paul in this passage gives us this description of this life as a battle, as a war. And remember, where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Well, we know that he was a prisoner, a prisoner of Rome. And maybe as Paul wrote this letter, maybe he could even see a soldier in view. Maybe he was even chained to a soldier. And there's that sort of irony that he might have this picture right in front of him as a, of a soldier with all of the armour and equipment that he has. And he writes this part of the letter all about the armour of God. And so he sets us this scene of a struggle and a conflict, but he tells us how to deal with it and he tells us how to win. So firstly, let's see the battle. We're in a battle. We've just got four points to go through this evening. And the first one is we're in a conflict. We're in a battle. And most of us, I would guess, don't really know what that's like. I looked this up just after the end of World War II when my dad was born. He, I wasn't here in World War II. 1948, my dad was born. And the stats are that there was nearly a million people serving in the UK military. Now, they reckon there's about 20% or just less than 20% of that. So less than 200,000 people. And most of us, especially younger ones, don't really know anything about the realities and the horrors of war. Now, I had an illustration about the Territorial Army before I knew my friend Jack was going to be here tonight, who's in uh, the TA. And there's a difference, isn't there, between being a, a reserve soldier or someone who's kind of just training, but there's a difference between that and being in the battle itself, isn't it? If you're just training or if you're just uh, in something like the TA, you might go down to the barracks for, I don't know, once or twice a week. You might be in your uniform. You might learn about military strategy, you might learn about weapons, you might learn about discipline, you might be able to march and parade. You'd look the part, you'd look the part. But it's not the same as being in the battle, is it? Life isn't dangerous. You haven't got a sniper with a, a, a weapon trained on your head. You haven't got a decision to make that would cost potentially you or your unit 
their lives. Life would be very different, isn't it, when you go onto the combat field. Even in the world of sport, those who play sport, you can play a really intense uh, team sport and you can come off feeling, whew, that was intense, that was tough. Those decisions I had to make, I had to call on all the skills that I have to do what I could do that would win us that game. And you could come off knowing that one mistake you'd made lost you or lost your team that contest. Sometimes we have to apply and use all of our skills, both to defend and also to attack the opposition. And if we do that, then maybe we'll win the contest. But in a war, but in a battle, that's even more true, isn't it? You'd have to be alert all the time. Where is the threat? Where is the enemy? Is there something we need to get ready? Is there equipment to prepare? Is there ground to take? Is there a place to defend and hold? Are there people we need to rescue? What's our strategy today? And how are we going to do it? Well, we can see in this part of the, the letter what Paul says to paint this picture. He's told us already in this book what Jesus has done for us. He's told us in chapter 2, at the start of chapter 2, and you, he says to the readers, he made alive who were dead, you used to be dead, in trespasses and sins. He's told us things that should characterise our living, but he's realistic enough to know that it won't always be easy. So in verse 10 of chapter 6, he says, be strong, brothers and sisters. He reminds them that they need God's strength for the conflict. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armour of God so that you can stand, so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. We have something to stand against. In verse 12, he says that we have something to wrestle against. He says that we've got to stand our ground. He says in verse 13 and 14 that there's opposition to us, that he calls them flaming arrows that are thrown at us. And he says to the readers, you need to get on your combat gear, you need to get dressed up for the battle, and you need to get your weapons, and you need to get out there. Somebody said the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. Some folks expect it to be easy. Yes, Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that I have come, that they may have life and have it to the full. And yes, in Romans, we're reminded that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, in Romans chapter 5, we're reminded that since we've been justified through faith, then we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. But we're not promised an easy life, are we? Jesus told his followers that they should do what? That they should count the cost of following him. And Paul, the writer of this letter, even knows that for himself. He writes in the book of Romans that sometimes he does things that he knows he shouldn't do. And sometimes he doesn't do things that he knows he should do. Even though he knows what the right thing to do is, he still sometimes doesn't do it. Because it's hard. It's hard. I wonder if we were to put um, our thoughts down, what would be the battles of 2018? that you think you face. 
Maybe someone would say, well, there's a pressure for Christians to conform, isn't there? There's a pressure for us to do or to accept things that the world now says are normal and to give up our voice. Maybe those of you who are studying in school or college might say, well, you know, it's tough in that environment. The world's got a philosophy. And, you know, most of the time it's not the one found in this book. A Christian worldview of things in biology or in geography or in history, or if I hold to that, it's going to be tough for me. There's a pressure for social media, isn't there? There's a pressure to be seen on it, to be online all the time, to be visible, to be doing what everybody else is doing, to be always commenting, to be always using the language that people use. There's a pressure, perhaps, to join in with things that you shouldn't be joining in with. Young people thinking of getting married, if you're going to stand and say, I'll take the Bible's teachings on this seriously, I'll live as I should live, and we'll live as we should live, and there's certain things we won't do until we get married, the world might laugh at you. For people in countries where the government would love to see Christianity disappear, it'll take courage, won't it, to stand for your faith. Just yesterday, I got an email from the Christian Institute. Some of you might have got it says that there's persecution is ramping up in China and the Chinese authorities, it says, are telling Christians to abandon their superstition and forcing them to worship the president. In the working world, there's issues. If you're going to stand for your faith, it might cost you your job. Something was reported in the press recently, wasn't it, about a doctor who uh, was effectively dismissed because of beliefs that he expressed. All sorts of challenges. But the great thing is, whatever it may be for me and for you, Paul teaches us that we don't need to give up. And the great thing is he tells us how we can fight and stand and win. So let's see how. Secondly, we're going to see that in this battle and in any battle, you have an enemy. You have an enemy in verses 11 to 13. I guess if you're in a war, it's imperative that you hold your ground and you don't give it up to the enemy. And so if, if I'm a Christian and if you're a Christian, how do you do that? How do we hold our ground? Well, we have to know our enemy. And earlier on in this book, we're reminded that as Christians, we have enemies in the form of the world, that system of belief which is opposed to God. We have an enemy in the flesh, it says, which is the sinful desires which are in all of us. And the devil, it talks of the devil. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has defeated all of these. We're told that he's overcome the world. We're told that he's overcome the flesh and that he's overcome the devil. Of that we can be sure and certain. But you say, the thing is, I'm still here in this body. I'm still on this earth and on this world for some more years. And it's hard. Yes. And so in verse 11, Paul instructs us to put on the full armour of God so that what we, we can do what? We can take our stand, he says, against the schemes and the wiles of the devil. Paul's already written elsewhere about the reality of the devil. He calls him a personal and invisible and powerful spirit. But you know what? He's not as powerful as the Lord Jesus Christ, is he? But if we're not for the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Bible has a stark thing to say to us because it says if we're not for him, 
then we're against him. It says there's no middle ground in these things. And why is it that people can't see what the truth of God is? Because we're told that people have been blinded. They can't see the truth. And so the battle is on, but it's a battle for the mind. And Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, he says, against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How elsewhere does the Bible describe this enemy? He's called an accuser. He's called a tempter. He's called a liar. He's described as a roaring lion going around to see who he can devour, eat up, destroy. He's called the God, small g, of this age. We're told that he pretends to be an angel of light. He's going to do all he can to make us give up. He's going to do all he can to make us back down on our beliefs and our standard. He wants you to get discouraged. He wants us to give up. And the Bible tells us that people in this world, systems of belief, have been blinded by this enemy, the one who the Bible calls the God of this age. There's a battle. There's a battle on. And it's on every day. And like it or not, we're in the thick of it. We're on the field. We're soldiers at war. And the war that we're in is a spiritual one. And we need the power of God to stand against this enemy, this one who is clever and this one who is so devious. So thirdly, what are we going to do? Well, Paul tells us that there's some equipment to put on. And I hope you can see that. I've just simply made that quite visual. Well, I haven't made that, so I found that. But hopefully, especially for, for the younger ones, you might be able to just see a bit of what Paul says in these verses from verses 13 through to 17. Because if you're going out, um, if you're going out to play sport, you need to be properly equipped. A few of us yesterday were out in the park next door doing a run. If you turned up to do a, a run in your wellies, you wouldn't get very far, would you? If you go and play football with the wrong gear, you're not going to do very well. And so he says, if you're going into battle, you need to be properly equipped. And the good thing is that God has provided us with the equipment and the protection that we need. Five pieces of defensive armor we're told about in these verses. The first one in verse 14 is what we could call the belt of truth. Well, actually, this was, it, you, you might see it in, in your version of girded your waist with truth. And it's like a belt from which we're told there, there was like long pieces of maybe leather or something hanging that might have had metal in them to protect this upper part of your body from the enemy's swipes. So you've got this belt and you can see there's things hanging. Yet you still had the freedom to move. And in the same way, we're told that Christians are to put on this belt, but the belt we're to put on is truth, says Paul. Truth. If we're going to go out there, if we're going to go into a battle, we need to know, don't we, what God has said in this book. If we're going to go out there and take on some of the things that are said that are just not true, that are distortions of the truth, and things that are going to come at us, whether it's in school, whether it's in work, whether it's in um, media, then we have to know the truth. And so Paul tells us and encourages us, make sure you know it. Make sure you know this book. 
And if you know it, you won't be tossed backwards and forwards by every wind that comes along. Take this book, he says. Why not start tonight to try and get to know this book better? So we have this belt. And then the, the soldier would put on a breastplate, we're told, in verse 14. Again, maybe this was a tough piece of leather, maybe with a metal plate on it that would cover your chest, maybe cover part of your back as well. And if you didn't fit that properly, then you wouldn't last very long in the battle. Because if you left holes or if you left space for the enemy to come, you'd get done quickly because the enemy would find the gaps in your armor. And Paul calls this breastplate in verse 14, he calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? You might ask, does it mean right living? Well, yes, we have to do what is right. And yes, we should avoid trying to do what is wrong, yes. But to, we're to remember, aren't we, that one of the devil's attacks on us is gonna to be to say, Graham, you're not gonna cut this. You're worthless. You're not gonna stick this out. You're not good enough to live this Christian life. You're gonna fail. You're gonna trip up. And on my own, and on our own, that would be true, wouldn't it? It would be certainly true. But the great news is that something has been done for us. And something has been done for us is Jesus Christ's righteousness has been put to our account. Our sins were punished when he died for us. And the Bible has what might seem like a big word to some of us. But the Bible calls this justification. Something that's been done for me and for you. And if we put that on, and if we put that thinking on, then we'll be safe from his attempts to discourage us. So Paul calls this the breastplate of righteousness. Remember what Jesus Christ has done for you, he says to his readers. Then in verse 15, he talks about the third thing. He talks about what we need to put on our feet, the shoes on our feet. While a soldier going out would probably wear something like thick leathery sandals with strong straps and a good grip, which he'd need when fighting on the field. So the question is, what sort of firm footing do we need when we're in this spiritual battle? Well, Paul calls it the foundation of the gospel or the preparation of the gospel of peace in verse 15. Isn't it great that we can just take time to reflect on the fact that we're at peace with God? Isn't that an incredible truth? Isn't it wonderful to think and remember that we're loved by him because of what Jesus has done for us. We can believe God's truth. We have the righteousness of God. And so we have this wonderful peace with God. There's a verse in Romans chapter eight that says, there's nothing, there's nothing in all creation which can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You might not have thought about having peace in your armor, might you? Fourthly, the fourth piece of equipment you can see is the shield in verse 16. We're told to take the shield of faith and the shields that the Romans use might, might have looked something a bit like that. They say about four feet high and it looked like a rectangular shape, but actually a little bit curved at the sides. And if you held that in front of you at the right angle, then you'd be well protected from things that might come at you. Arrows, whatever they might be. And if you stood with your friends and the others in your unit, and if you stood side by side by side, you could make a big set of shields 
that were almost impenetrable. If you marched together, took your time making sure to leave no gaps, you could be a pretty formidable defensive line. Not much was going to get through and past you. It's a nice picture, isn't it, of going into battle together, dependent on each other's help. So what is the Christian shield? Paul says in verse 16, the shield is faith. If we walk with that in front of us, then he says, we've got little to fear. We've got nothing to fear. Because he says in verse 16, you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is faith, you might ask? Well, perhaps quite simply, it's just taking God at his word. It's accepting what his word teaches. It's obeying his commands. It's trusting in the promises and the power of God to do the things that he says he can and will do. It's a shield that will protect our hearts from hateful thoughts. It's a shield that will protect us from thinking badly of others. It will shield us from the constant desire for sin that we may struggle with. Have you put that shield on? Says Paul. And then finally, the last piece of, of defensive armour is the one you can see at the top. You've got to cover your head. It's the helmet. Verse 17, put on the helmet. And he calls this the helmet of salvation. Now in battle then, you might have the danger of a sword swipe. You might have the danger of an arrow fired at you. And if you get hit in the head with one of those, in those days, you're probably done for, weren't you? But with the, with the helmet on, something that looks as thick and solid as that, you might be saved. Protect your mind. Protect our mind. That's an important thing today, isn't it? The helmet of salvation. Protect our minds from doubt. Protect our minds from doubting that God is able to do what he says. Protect our minds from doubting that we are good enough for him. Doubting that we've got the strength to do this ourselves because he's already reminded us Christ has done it for us already. Our salvation has been won and is secure. The enemy would love to get at our minds, wouldn't he? In war, they say quite often that propaganda was a big tool. Often planes would go over and they might drop leaflets on the ground to the people below. You're going to lose this war. We're going to... It, it's all over for you. You might as well give up. We're too powerful. Or they might get on the radio or they might get on the TV or whatever, trying to get into the minds of the people they're against. But here's our reminder, not to focus on what we feel, but to focus on what we know, that we know is true, that we know what God has done for us, that we know that God has promised that he'll never let his people go. And Jesus has said, didn't he, that, no one will pluck his sheep out of his hand. So as Paul's talked to his readers about these pieces of armour, he's asking them, have you put them on? Have you put them on? Are you studying your Bible? Are you learning truth? Are you being taught by him? Have you known this gospel of peace? Are you growing in faith and in the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour? And then finally we see... Fourthly and finally, we're going to see the encouragement to advance from verses 17 to the end, the encouragement to advance. 
because it's not enough, is it, to simply stand there and look good in the armour and simply stand there and just try to defend your position because to defeat the enemy in a battle, then we need to go forward, don't we? And what weapons has God given us in this battle to go forward with? Well, he tells us of two. The first one is the sword from verse 17. He calls it the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you might have seen on the picture before there was a sword. Well, they say the Roman soldier had a sword that was maybe about this long. And rather than a big chopping type thing, it would often be very precise, kind of stabbing motions, looking for holes in the armour of the opposition. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read of how the Bible is compared to a sword because it's so sharp and it can cut through anything. I wonder if, if you are a Christian, if you remember how you felt when you were convicted, firstly, about the fact that you knew you needed to trust in God for yourself. Sometimes we say that we felt like we were cut to the heart. Do you feel that now? about these things a metal sword like those soldiers would have would pierce the body but the word of god we're told will pierce the heart and if you use a sword you know from at home don't you if you use a sword or a knife for long enough over time it's going to become blunt and it's going to become dull and you'll have to sharpen it again but this sword of the spirit that we read of here in verse 17 it has its own power because it's living and powerful Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And so we need to apply this word of God to the situations that we're facing. We've got to use it. We've got to have it. We've got to know it. And we've got to know it so that we can use it. We can't use it if we don't know it. Can we? Remember how Jesus, when he was in the desert and he was faced by the devil and was being tempted by the devil, how did he start his replies? He said, it is written it is written. This is what the Bible says. It's what we need to know too, isn't it? Because in life, you're going to come up against people who are going to try and catch you out, who are going to try and trick you, who are going to try and tell you that this is a load of rubbish, this is not true, that they've got a better answer than you've got, that you need to give up on, the, on whatever you believe. How are you going to answer them? How are you going to answer them if you don't know the word of God? For yourself. It's vital, isn't it, that we know this word well so that we can stand firmly on truth and we can apply God's word to every situation. It's not enough just to trust the preachers that you listen to. It's not enough to say, well, I'm sure Ian's done his homework. I'm sure Keith's done his homework. I'm sure Graham read up before he came out tonight. We've got to know this word for ourselves, haven't we? So he talks about the weapon of the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And then the second weapon he talks about for us in verse 18 is prayer, is the weapon of prayer. Because we can't fight this battle in our own power. No matter how clever you might be, no matter how strong you might be, no matter how talented you might think you are, we need strength for the fight. We need strength for this life. And where does this help come from? We need to pray. We need to pray. And verse 18 says that we're to pray always, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. We're to pray. And we're to pray often. And we're to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of things. 
can look back in the Old Testament and see plenty of examples of prayer, can't we? can think of in Exodus how Moses went to pray on the mountains when the Amalekites were attacking the Israelites. We can think about how the prayers of Abraham were answered or the prayers of David or prayers of the prophets like Elijah. And verse 18 reminds us to pray always, to keep on praying, to pray that we won't fall victim to these temptations, to pray that we won't fall victim to doubts, to pray that we'll be strengthened, to pray that God will be good to us, to pray for others who may be facing these same strength, uh, struggles. Pray with all kinds of prayers, verse 18. Pray with supplication, plead with God for things. Pray with intercession, ask God for things. Pray with thanksgiving, we've been reminded of that recently, haven't we? Thank God for answered prayers. And verse 18 reminds us to be watchful, to stay alert and to pray always for each other. It says for all the saints, pray for each other. Why not ask someone tonight before you go, what can I pray for you this week? What can I pray for you in the next few days? We're part of a family and we should pray for each other. And look in verse 19, how Paul even asks for prayer for himself. He says, pray for me because I've got to speak. And when I speak, I want to be able to do it rightly and boldly and confidently. If somebody like the apostle Paul knew he needed prayer, then don't we need it? I know I do. And so as we finish, well, the great encouragement Paul gives us in these verses is that we're not fighting this battle alone. We can encourage each other. We can trust in the goodness of our God. We can trust in our heavenly father who equips us and has equipped us with everything we need. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be part of the family of God. And I hope and I pray that this will be of some encouragement to you this evening.